Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with High Performance Director at Columbus Crew, Steve Tashjian. Thanks for tuning in to episode 119 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we have a part two with Steve Tashjian. So Steve appeared in the podcast a couple of months ago and because Steve was keen to do a part two and part one went down really, really well, we obviously made it happen. So it was great to chat with Steve again, uh, really good guest, really engaging guest. So really happy to uh, and excited to bring you part two with, uh, with Steve. So topics for this uh, episode include uh, function and what that word means and how that's kind of been perceived and how it fits into Steve's philosophy. We discuss uh, strength and rehab and then a little bit of nutrition. So the strength and rehab stuff, we get into some really good detail with what actually uh, Steve is doing on the ground with his guys at uh, Columbus Crew. So really appreciate Steve's openness uh, and hope you uh, enjoyed that, uh, specific that little part with Steve because it is uh, it's gold from my point of view to actually hear what people are doing on the ground. So just before we get into the chat with Steve, uh, got another Sports Science Minute with uh, our sponsors today, Coach Me Plus. So definitely check them guys out at Coach Me Plus and this two or three minute little segment um, which as always is really really interesting and hopefully it just gives a little bit of kind of direct information on, on a topic every other week um, which just adds to the content that is in the main part of the episode. So another big thank you to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard and the Groin Bar. So definitely check them guys out as well and massive thanks to them both for continuing their sponsorship sponsorship with the podcast. So over to the guys at Coach Me Plus and the episode with Steve Zafon. Speak soon. Hello, this is Andrew Russo, sports performance specialist here at Coach Me Plus. When it comes to big data that teams have to digest and analyze, there is more and more information out there. Whether that's coming from wearable technology, testing, or workouts, Teams have to break down this information. Historically, teams have wanted to see how a a particular athlete stacks up versus a group, position, or given population. But it can also be helpful to look at an athlete versus self, specifically when we're looking at load numbers and wellness data. One example, talking about load coming from a wearable sensor, when we're looking at how much work the athlete is doing over a given period of time, especially game to game, we may want to look at, look at an athlete versus self and look at those averages so then we can prescribe specific movements and work for the rest of the week. If we try to look at an athlete versus a given position group, sometimes we'll see that athletes play much more, much less, or just have much higher stress and demand based on the position they play and the role that they have on the team. Another example would be wellness questionnaire data. Especially when we're talking about subjective uh, data, sometimes athletes may rate something differently. Some athletes may be more positive or more pessimistic than others. So a given example would be rate your quality of sleep from last night. Now if we're on a one to five scale, some athletes may rate towards higher 
and they may just stay towards the higher end of that scale, three, four, or five. Other athletes may rate towards the lower end, one, two, or three. Instead of looking at, again, athlete versus a population, we can look at athlete versus self, find the mean and standard deviation, and then find the blips that move outside of that standard deviation as we move forward. The more data that you collect, you'll be able to see this line eventually smooth out, and you'll be able to get a really good indication of where that athlete falls versus themselves on a given day. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we have another part two with Steve Tastian. So welcome to the podcast again, Steve. I appreciate it, Rob. Thanks for having me back, man. No, it's good, mate. So uh, for anyone that hasn't listened to part one, which I encourage everyone to do, do you just want to uh, give us a little bit of a background on you and, and where you're currently at? I'm the high performance director with Columbus Crew Soccer Club in, in Major League Soccer. Uh, I started off my career uh, after graduating from physical therapy school in Southern California, just doing, uh, luckily enough, a little bit of work uh, within within the soccer realm, having spent some time with Jim Liston, who at the time was the head fitness coach for the LA Galaxy. And I was working in his facility in Pasadena called the Competitive Athlete Training Zone. And I just had a chance to assist him uh, in his role there with the club while, while uh, treating patients as a physical therapist and training some of his players in the off season as a strength and conditioning coach. And it, it was just a nice introduction to, to the industry through a, a few guys who really helped mentor me early on. And then kind of had my chance to uh, spread my wings a little bit and uh, try to develop my own philosophy off of the back of what I'd learned from my mentors. And then uh, in, a, in a roundabout way, came back to MLS um, in my first role with Columbus Crew back in 2007 as the head strength and fitness coach there. Had two and a half really good seasons there and, and moved on abroad to, to five great years at, at Everton Football Club and uh, had a great experience in England for a few years before we came back in the summer of 2014. Uh, back, to the, back to the crew uh, under a new brand as Columbus Crew Soccer Club, a new ownership, new head coach, and uh, and a new role. So just the opportunity now to serve as a high performance director and, and have an opportunity to implement a program uh, uh, in, in a way that, uh, that I had envisioned for a long, long time. I've been a physical therapist. I've, I've been a strength coach. I've been a sports scientist. And now this is three years into my opportunity to, uh, you know, really create a program the way I've always wanted to. And so that's where we stand now. Mm-hmm. So you went into a little bit more detail, um, which obviously we don't have to do because you're in, in part one. But if anyone wants to check out about the uh, Times Everton and things like that, that's that's obviously we, we covered that in part one. Mm-hmm. Um, but is, is the director of high performance a kind of a common title in MLS? Is that pretty, pretty standard across the across the league? Everyone has one. No, no, not at this not at this point. I think uh, okay. it's it's becoming more prevalent in American sport. I, I would say that. I've seen it uh, popping up in, in the NBA and, and in the NFL for sure. And there's a couple of us in MLS with the same title. I, I, the, you'll see different um, variations of it. I've seen performance manager. Um, I've seen high performance director. And I think the role itself is also a little bit um, different in, in different clubs. In some circumstances, the individual's more uh, more overseeing the strength and conditioning and sports science platforms 
and maybe not having as much input um, medically. My role within the club here is that, um, you know, I also have some responsibilities in making sure that the medical group is in, is integrated into the entire performance platform. So although overall our philosophy and methodology and how it affects our medical group is part of my kind of quality control role, I really don't interfere too much in day-to-day operations on the medical side of, of the club. But that, that is kind of in the end, um, and my overall responsibility is that anything that touches the players and anything that uh, influences performance is my responsibility. So that, that kind of maybe sometimes um, separates me from some of the performance directors in the league, but uh, overall it's growing. There's a few uh, few uh, pr- practitioners with uh, with the performance director or performance manager title, and uh, let's see where it goes. I, I think the, the other side of it is also guys that are strengthening, getting conditioning coaches who have been in the league for a long, long time who – Whose roles have probably evolved into what could what could be called a performance director, but you know their title just hasn't changed yet. So it's in a, the league in terms of performance directors is in a state of a little bit of transition, I'd say. So, but but I, I don't think it'll I don't think it'll stop. I think it'll continue to become a role that's more prevalent, uh, and I think it's important as long as it, there's some as long as there's you know clear criteria in place for you know, who qualifies to fulfill a role of that, of that magnitude or whether there's just a, you know, a level of experience that's necessary before that role is embarked upon, I think is important. But um, I do feel like it's going to become more consistent. Uh, I do. I, I see it becoming an important position as we start to grow as a league, you know, as the, uh, as the players become a greater priority as assets, you know, you're going to want to take care of those assets uh, as well as you can. And I think the the role will continue to be more prevalent. Mm-hmm. So that's something we'll come on to a little bit later with regards sure. to um, that kind of integration between the departments. But just first off, and it was something that we we chatted about uh, pr- uh, briefly uh, in the uh, in the part one, but um, a little bit more off off air just mm-hmm. just before the press record just now, and that was the the kind of commercialization of the um, the term function. Right. I know it's something that um, that you obviously, like I say, we spoke about. I just wanted to get your, to, to vocalize that on air because that was, that was really interesting and, uh, and get your views on that. Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting one. I think the, um, the word functional has become, um, has become, has become coined in many, many instances. And you brought, you brought reference to the word core. Uh, I see some similarities to the way those terms have been used and and definitions have been changed and I think they have become advantageous for a lot of for a lot of reasons um, other than actually promoting good sound functional training and you know the the word functional is placed in front of a lot of different things in order to enhance its resale value rather than actually promoting its its place in in performance uh, enhancement you know the Function itself is is uh, there's a very very clear definition of what function is. You know, function is in its simplest form the body's ability. Um, you know, as a uh, as a receptor to receive information from the environment and translate that into powerful um, powerful responses to the stimuli. We have in, whether it's whether it's in sport or in activities of daily living, you know, function is really about how we're overcoming 
um, you know, gravity's force upon us at all times, how we're functioning in all three planes, how we're functioning in, in various bases of support um, at greater resistances, greater speeds, depending on the activity itself. You know, that really is the essence of function. When my foot hits the ground as an athlete and, you know, my body is now asking the questions of where am I and also trying to find a solution to where do I want to go, you know, that in and of itself is where function lies. I think you, you break it down to a very, very pivotal moment and function is really defined for me at that moment where eccentric loading turns into concentric action, you know, this... Uh, it's been termed the point of transformation it's, it's, or the transformational zone. It's been termed transfer. Uh, this, this process, there's always a moment where this loading process through the body is going to be turned into powerful, explosive, concentric movement. Well, at that point of transformation is where noise has its greatest effect on movement quality. And... As I'm trying to take the forces that are being placed upon me uh, and use that potential energy that I'm creating from it and turn it to this kinetic response, any sort of instability I have, any movement dysfunction, whether it comes from mobility issues from previous injuries, whether it comes from just a, a genetic mobility issue I have or overall proprioceptive abilities, uh, deceleration uh, problems, Anything, anything that, uh, any movement-based eccentric question that's get that gets asked, where I don't have the skill set, I don't have the the subconscious ability to control it. Um, that's the moment where that noise will heavily affect the quality of of the concentric movement, and that's the essence of function. Uh, you know, it has nothing to do with the equipment I'm using in my exercise. Just because I'm using a dumbbell doesn't mean I'm functional versus uh, a barbell. Just because I'm standing on a BOSU ball rather than on the ground doesn't mean I'm functional. That's not, that's not what function is about. We're trying to create uh, an ability within the player to overcome anything that their sport and the rest of the environment uh, acts upon them uh, so that they can respond in a reactive way to the chaos uh, powerfully in a in a coordinated manner, like that's that to me, that's the essence of function, and that's what's getting missed. So, how would one go about? So, when it comes to exercise selection, you've got this chaotic uh, situation in a in a match. Mm -hmm. You're trying to pick out aspects of that chaotic event and translate that into an exercise in the gym to help that. Right. What's the process that you would go through to join them dots together and end up with something that happens in a nice warm room in in a gym in a yeah. gym with fifteen guys? Or well, one guy to to tick that box for that guy on the field. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a, that's probably that's a really great question, Rob. I think the you know the starting point for it is to one make sure that collectively as a staff you have the right priorities in the gym. So if, you know, uh, the number one priority for us within our, within our gym is, is not uh, how much weight you move. That's, that's not the priority. It, we, we, there's some importance placed upon it, but it's not the priority. The priority is transfer. So if 
the first and foremost to answer your question is that the uh, to get there for the players, the staff needs to make sure that their priorities are in check in terms of what they want to accomplish in the gym. So once that's been accomplished, it, it now changes your setup. Well, if that's the priority, then my gym needs to look a certain way. Um, I need training space. Uh, I need the I need the the athlete to have the the room and the equipment necessary to be able to move in different planes, to be affected in different ways, to be able to move at different speeds, and to be able to uh, you know uh, to have different forms of resistance and different volumes of resistance placed upon me, and that is going to affect how you set up your gym. Um, and so let's tick that box and say that that's been that's been established as well. Now there's a there's a there's a need to understand the basic elements that the sport will impact upon the body, you know. And I've always broken it down quite simply to we we touched on it earlier. Uh, you know, for me, it's we'll ignore all the other stimuli because obviously there's a lot of other environmental stimuli that the that the player is absorbing at the same time. And we can just focus on, you know, momentum, uh, gravity, ground reaction force, to, to be simple about it. I think as soon as my foot hits the ground, communication is taking place. And as gravity is trying to crush me into the ground and ground reaction force is pushing in the opposite direction, my foot is now going to begin the process of answering the most important initial question, which is, at this moment, where I am right now, where is my center of mass? And depending on where that center of mass is, the next question is, am I under control? And those answering those two questions is going to be the basis for creating the solution for the next question, which is, okay, where do I want to go? Because if I'm coming into a certain movement in a certain way, whether the ball's at my feet or the ball isn't at my feet, as soon as I go to change direction, or as soon as I decide that the direction I'm going in uh, it, uh, isn't adequate, then I'm going to end up having to answer those questions about where my center of mass is. And if the answer to that question is, I'm under control, and I've been here and I've done that, then finding the solution to where do I want to go next is actually going to happen with less steps. It's going to happen more powerfully and it's going to happen with less interference from noise. So that's really what I'm trying to replicate in the gym. So is single leg more functional than the squat stance? And in essence, I think the overall answer for most people would be yes. But the reason why comes down to the body being able to answer that question in the in in the moment, you know, when I'm single leg and I need to change direction, I want to know that I can control forces, I can control ground reaction force as quickly as possible with the least amount of noise so that I have the flexibility of moving in several different directions and I have those choices available to me because of the way I train in the gym. So now if I choose, if I choose now to to train that a certain way in the gym, uh, it's going to come down to understanding the now the individual differences in the in the player's abilities. That's what that's what our video based movement screen is for. So when we're in single leg, we want to know what our biggest deficits are. 
You know, is it mobility? Does it have to do with where the process starts at the foot? Do I have to go as intently as looking at their subtalar eversion? You know, does the, does the foot unlock? Does the process of loading begin properly as the subtalar joint everts and the lower leg begins to go through internal rotation and that loads the hip and that turns on, you know, all this, all these transformational muscles through the trunk and, and stabilizing muscles through the groin. Is all that happening in an effective way? Can it happen more effectively by improving the mobility that's that that I that I'm finding at the foot? Maybe the mobility at the foot is fine. Maybe there's actually too much mobility at the foot. And as I move my way up the chain, my hip actually can't control the amount of movement that ground reaction force is causing. That's a completely different set of circumstances to look at in terms of function, but it is going to affect my ability to change direction. So as your answer, this is the process that you go to to answer these questions about how do I, where do I start with function? What is guiding the the exercise prescription taking place in my gym? Those those are really really important questions to go through. And as you as you look at your players more intently, and your screens become uh, you know a, a little bit more meticulous, then you probably start to un un ravel some of the the more intricate aspects of of evaluation that are going to that are going to help you with improving function um it's a but it's i tell you the human body is incredible so you know you're really trying to identify what's happening uh is a difficult process but that's that's where the industry needs to go i mean that's our job our job is to continue to get more and more focused on, on discovering what it is that's affecting an, an individual's ability to reach another level of, of athleticism. So function is ingrained in that. Function is a big part of that. And if we're not truly paying attention to how the body is responding and we're not making that a priority in our gym, then you're going to have a hard time convincing me that you're, you truly have a functional strength and conditioning program in place. Again, because it's, it, it's, it's about where your principles are not about the exercises that are that are in your program you know so I, it's it's a it's a tough question to answer but that's where it starts that's that's my belief mm -hmm. so to to be able to understand that that movement you've you mentioned about the video based movement screen firstly do you want, do you want to touch on that and then secondly on the back of that you've mentioned transfer a couple of times i'd just love to get your view on how them two link together the video Movement screen. I'm guessing that's in a, in a closed environment, like an like an FMS, but you video it. Right, right. But how much transfer does that give um, to what happens on the pitch? Yeah, it, it, a lot, a lot. You know, I, I think the first part of it is the question is, you know, how good are the movements that you've chosen to video? Um, and our our you know, we started our first year with seven movements. Um, we have taken some out, replaced them with others, added some. Uh, you know, we're closer to eight or nine movements that we're looking at now. And the one, the one big thing that we that we look at when when we're choosing the exercise itself is collectively as a group, are the movements telling us something about one how they how they can control. Uh, forces in in all three planes collectively two is it telling us something about how they move in all three bases of support 
And then finally, is it telling us something about how that control changes when you add speed? Those are the three elements that we think are really, really important. It needs to tell us how they control all three planes of motion, looking at them individually. You know, how does control and proprioceptive ability change based on one plane of motion to the next? Two, how does their ability uh, change when we're looking at one base of support to the next? And lastly, how does it change when we add speed? So th those are the most important things that we look at. And then the, the beauty of video comes in uh, over the course of the year in that we, we can watch it as many times as we want. And I think that's the most important piece when, it's, when you're talking about how it affects transfer because you need to be able to, to be pretty meticulous. You need to understand that there's going to be human error and video allows you to, to the best of your ability, um, eliminate the uh, eliminate the effects of of uh, human error. I think that's the a, a big part of it. I can consistently watch the video over and over again, and we can watch it collectively as a staff. So now somebody that wasn't necessarily available to be there during the test can have input into what they see because we're going to watch it together as a staff later. You know, those things are really important. And now that analysis that takes place afterwards is massively important for transfer because now all of us have had input into what this individual's movement dysfunction is. So our corrective programs, our way of taking a look at movement coordination and correcting the things that are affecting it um, are, in my opinion, uh, far more detailed because of the way we were able to approach it because of video. And now those individual dis, uh, elements of dysfunction are addressed accordingly, and we're having a direct effect on transfer at that point. Mm -hmm. So are you, please forgive me if I'm asking you things that you don't particularly want to say, but can you take mm -hmm. us through the nine movements that you do for your movement screen? Yeah, I mean, I can take you through a couple for sure, just to give you an yeah. idea of, yeah, of, yeah. of of the differences in, in how we integrate the 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 three elements of uh, and maybe why you took some out would be really interesting as well yeah yeah you know we uh well a great example is is we'll we'll do um you know a flexion extension test where so i've got a lateral view of the player and they're standing with feet together barefoot they've got sliders on no shirt no shorts no socks they've got hands above head with a dowel and they quite simply flex from the hip, reach to the ground as far as they can. And then they do the opposite movement. They bring the dowel up above head in an arcing motion, and they reach back behind them as far as they can, extending through the spine as far as they can. So we'll repeat that motion forward and backwards from both lateral views. And now collectively, we're not going to – we're going to look at how well they, they move in the sagittal plane in a very simple way. and gives us information about lower body mobility across several segments and that and that we can then ask the question of okay if we're seeing really really poor extension and now we're going to see that athlete 1v1 without video and assess where that extension issue is coming from that helps now we take that same exercise we put their feet together and they're facing us now they have the dowel in their hands, but their arms are outstretched directly in front of them at shoulder height. And now the movement is to rotate. So now I want to take their 
the dowel that I want to rotate to the right as far as as far as they can. Feet have to stay together. Then I want to rotate to the left as far as they can. <clears throat> we give them a few repetitions. And again, if we're seeing restrictions in internal rotation of the hip, if we're seeing less rotation to the right than we are to the left, then we can do very, very simple evaluations of where that restriction is coming from. Now, this particular test is actually one that we didn't necessarily re remove, but we, we modified it just a little bit because we felt like the we were missing, at times we missed where the true mobility issue is coming from. So instead of doing it with feet together and uh, in a, where the, where the base of support is, you know, two feet together right next to each other, instead we took it to a split stance with hands above head and now we asked them to rotate right and left with their hands above head because what was happening was in one particular player, we saw a restriction in rotation to the right and we assumed it was right hip internal rotation that was affecting right rotation, right? Well, a loss of internal rotation of the hip is, is not something you want in any athlete. We, we know that through research. If they're lacking in internal rotation, they're probably lacking in extension as well and that, that's never a good thing. Uh, the, there's always consequences to that. But what we found in that same player is their, their restriction in right rotation wasn't because of right hip internal rotation. When we put them in the split stance and we put their hands above head and had them rotate, we realized it was deep fascial restrictions coming from more deeper structures through their obliques going into their left hip flexor where they're actually restricted in movement from their left hip that was causing restrictions in their rotation to the right. So we weren't necessarily getting the true functional answer in the way we were doing it, so we changed it. Uh, at this point, we haven't fully done the change yet. We're still doing both tests. And if we, in the end we find out that the second test is that much better, then we'll fine-tune and streamline the, the movement screen process by taking out the test where the feet are together. But that's an example of, uh, uh, you know, of how we want to see the body move. I don't necessarily want to start with isolated movement. I don't want it to be something where we're going joint by joint. But I do want to see it dynamically in different planes. So that second exercise is not only an example of changing the base of support, but it's also an example of how we, how we individually choose planes of motion that we want to look at as well. We want them, we want them to be we want all three planes, all three bases support, and all three speeds to be included in, in, in our screen. And that's one example of that. Mm -hmm. No, that's cool. Thanks for that. We're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Steve, just to mention a couple of things. Firstly, uh, the Pacer Performance Podcast has a new home. For anyone that didn't know, uh, I have mentioned it quite a bit. So the new home of the Pacer Performance Podcast is strengthofscience.com. So as part of, part of the launch of the new site, what I've done is um, if you sign up to the Strength of Science newsletter, which you can do at strengthofscience.com, just pop your name and your email address in and you can get access to an hour-long Dan Baker webinar that he did for paceperformance.com uh, back end of 2015, start of 2016. So free access, free PDFs from the main man, Dan Baker. Just pop up to strengthofscience.com and enter your details there. So hope you enjoyed part one with Steve. Um, again, massive thanks to the sponsors today, Coach Me Plus and Val Performance. 
make sure you check them both out. Uh, great working with them guys, and I really appreciate their, not only their sponsorship, sponsorship, but their contribution to each and every episode. So I hope you enjoy part two, and I will speak to you soon. Just to move slightly away from the the kind of the, the movement screen side of things, but still coming with the um, kind of functional head on. Yeah. And that is one thing that I spoke to Alex Natera about, who's over at Aspire. Yeah. And that was that was transfer of training, and he w- he spoke about a number of uh, exercises and methods that they use to kind of bridge the gap between what happens in the gym and what happens in them kind of chaotic that chaotic environment that we've spoke about yeah is there anything that bridges that gap that that you implement with you get with your guys yeah i mean i think we have a we have tests that return to play tests that we choose to look at that are high higher level and quite chaotic and then we we, we obviously have baseline numbers for them in preseason, and, and those are what we're trying to progress to when we're making decisions about return to play but in terms of in the gym um, you know, in individual exercises, it's more about, it's more about the, our basic, the basis of our methodology that allows us to have that smooth transition rather than anything else. So, um, what I try to, what I want to see within the environment, uh, let's, let's look at it from this perspective. So, uh, you can have, you can take one basic movement, continue to modify it and progress it. Um, and it will continue to tell you more and more about the player's ability to return to sport. So let's say I just start simply in a split stance and I'm, my initial movement is not to lunge and return at all. It's to stay in a split stance. I'm going to, I want to just see how the body loads and see how it unloads. But I'm, but I'm cognizant that because of where the athlete is in the rehab process that I have to be careful with what I'm giving them. So I'll start in that split stance and all I'll do is I'll take both hands and I'll ask the player to reach all the way to the floor out in front of their front foot. You're going to see the ankle flex. You're going to see the knee flex. You're going to see the hip flex and the player is going to go through deceleration. They're going to go through loading. They're going to touch the ground and then return. Right now, if I wanted to, I could also ask them go all the way to the ground, touch the ground there. And then as you come back up, I want you to reach your hands behind head. So as I'm reaching forward, I want, I'm, I'm getting an idea of, of how the lower leg is decelerating, right? how the front leg is decelerating. But as I reach my hands all the way back, I'm also looking at how well the back hip is extending. How much mobility am I getting? Am I seeing something that eventually is going to translate into a good stride length? Am I seeing um, any restrictions that need to be addressed so that I'm, I'm, I'm maintaining good hip extension through the trailing leg? So that one simple exercise and, it, and it's as a starting point is telling me something about how the player is decelerating and how they're unloading, right? Now, let's say that same player is doing quite well. The progression has been very, very good. Now I can load that exercise. Maybe I take the rear foot and I bring it up off the ground. Maybe I leave it on the ground. But now I can put with dumbbells in hands or med balls, whatever it might be, I can progress that exercise, right? Now there's more resistance. Maybe instead of reaching down in front of the foot, Maybe now as I load into the ground, I just ask them to rotate their trunk in a certain direction. Maybe I'm asking them instead of reaching to to the ground when they're loading, maybe I ask them to reach above head when they're loading into the ground. Obviously, there's several different variations on that particular exercise that can work as a progression, not only in making it more challenging for the player 
from the resistance standpoint, but also adding other planes of motion to make sure that we're feeding the body and, and, and allowing the foot to communicate with the ground and allowing it to adjust to just another aspect of chaos, right? By adding a different plane of motion to the exercise. Well, now the player is showing, you know, very, very good improvements. We like where they're going. And now maybe I'm going to progress to a lunge and return, right? Or maybe now instead of a split stance in a sagittal plane, I'm going to go to a split stance in the frontal plane. And so now I've got a lateral lunge taking place. I'm not lunging and returning yet, maybe. Maybe I'm still in a static position and I'm just reaching my hands to the ground or maybe just asking the player to load into the ground and come back up into a stance position. But then that can easily translate into a step and return. So now I'm lunging and returning. And I can progress that same lunge. I can have a sagittal plane reach to the ground with the lunge and return to a standing position. Right? I can lunge at a 45-degree angle. I can lunge laterally. I can add rotation to the lunge. I can add a reach above head to the lunge. That's another progression that comes from that very simple exercise we started with, which was a split stance reach for the ground. That's all it was. Well, now maybe I add a Kaiser pulley to it. Right? And now instead of it being a medicine ball, maybe there's external resistance in a chopping motion, whether I'm facing the pulley or the pulley is in a lateral position to me. I've got lots of variations. I'm still in a split stance. It's still a progression from that very simple exercise we started with. Well, now I'm doing a fantastic lunge and return. Everything looks great. I'm loaded. I've increased speed. The player is doing really well. Maybe I move to a walking lunge now. I have walking lunge movements. Again, just a progression from that same exercise we started with, that simple reach for the ground. As I'm doing really, really well with lunge and with actual walking lunges now, so on and so forth, now I can go into what we call lunge hops, right? So now I can hop into the lunged position and return. And now I'm adding speed. I'm increasing the deceleration process. Now I'm adding the plyometric element to it. And I can do that. Uh, you know, in a very uh, controlled manner where I'm, where I'm always returning to a central point and my lunge hops are going maybe forward, they're going laterally, they're going with rotation. Or I can translate it into like a skater hop where now that lunge hop is actually progressing me forward. I'm locomoting forward as I'm going through my lunge hops. All of that is a progression from the exercise we started with, which is a split stance position with a reach to the ground, right? But the functional progression is about one, what can they handle next, right? Have I addressed all three, all three planes of motion? Can they control it well? Have I addressed multiple bases of support? Yes, I have. And now have I addressed speed and resistance? Yes, I have. So to answer your question, we're addressing transfer not because we have these single outstanding exercises that we've identified that we love, that all players need to do. That's not it. Instead, we have a methodology in place where we understand there's a starting point and then any starting point, as long as you keep the manipulating variables in your mind, bases of support, planes of motion, and speed, you're constantly going to progress a player towards, towards return to play. You're going to, every exercise is going to affect transfer, every single one. And you're going to probably feel pretty confident that you, nothing fell in, in between the cracks. So that's, that's our philosophy. Instead, have a, have your methodology in place. Um, that is that, that has sound principles to it that allows your practitioners to add their own creativity to the process, but you're eliminating the chances of things falling through the cracks 
um, and, and and guaranteeing uh, that your progressions are going to be um, appropriate and uh, provide you with a robust player when they return to play. Does that does that answer your question? Does that make no, sense? Absolutely. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. No, that's great, mate. Yeah, yeah, great examples. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so one thing that we 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 said we'd come back onto, and that was the um, the kind of strength and rehab. Where does a certain responsibility fall between medical and and physiotherapy and strength and high performance and all these kind of things? I know you had a bit of a um, obviously an opinion on this, and it'd be great to get that get get your opinion and get your your experience on on what normally happens and what might maybe the ideal. Yeah, I mean, I think the the this is probably the essence of of an integrated um, performance department. This is probably the greatest example of where integration um, most benefits players. It's probably the example where you find, um, you know, if you were to use this particular area as your litmus test for how integrated departments are on an evaluative process. You'd get your you'd get the most answers from from this particular area of study. So, um, you know, really, I don't think it comes down to whether whether you assign the responsibilities to certain practitioners. I think I've seen departments where that works really well, where you know there's physios who who are responsible for getting the players to a certain subacute level, and then you've got a rehab coach who is taking uh, you know the responsibility of of taking the progression from subacute to now, uh, you know, continuing the loading process, maybe starting to challenge the base of support and 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 speed of movement aspect of things, and then it translates into them returning to their normal strength and conditioning programs with a strength and conditioning coach. I think we've seen all that work, and there's elements of that in how we handle things at uh, at the crew. I just, uh, you know, what's more important for me is that the general understanding. That there's there's no difference between rehab and strength and conditioning. I mean that's the most important place to start. Uh, there your your physios and athletic trainers are strength and conditioning coaches. Your strength and conditioning coaches are physios and rehab rehab specialists because the under the the underlying philosophy and understanding of the continuum is is that there's no difference. The only thing that changes from rehab to return to play, again, is the resistance that you're applying to the player, the difficulty in terms of speed of movement, uh, and the overall volume. That's that's all that changes, but the basic principles are all still there. The foot needs to hit the ground. They need to be challenged in all three planes. They need to be taught how to communicate with the environment again, and they need to be challenged in a progressive way that doesn't put them in harm. And I think that's the general understanding that that integrates a department. It's not because uh, you know you've hired a high performance director and that person mandates that it's going to be done this way. I mean, you know, the 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 process the process comes more from understanding of what is rehab truly and how where does it fit. You know, it, should there even really be a, a a delineation between rehab and strength and conditioning? Is it all performance training? The answer is yes. All of it is. So I think that's what guides the integration that we see within our club. I, I've seen it in several other clubs done really, really well, very well. 
but it, it doesn't happen without communication and it doesn't happen without the entire staff having an understanding of what it all means and what are what are the overall objections uh, uh, objectives though that's how you that's how you kind of mend this this uh, process that's how you um, that's how you're able to draw a straight line with no cracks in it um, that that leads you from you know, first day post-op to first day back into training and playing games. So, um, yeah, that, I, I think that's an important aspect of what's getting missed currently. Um, I've been in an, in an environment where, you know, the practitioners hated each other. Nobody trusted anyone. And then I've been in environments where uh, the collaborative effort is unbelievable, you know, and, and I've, I've, never, I've never seen the, the silo situation work well. Uh, it, it, it's a disaster for the players. I've never seen a situation where it's successful. The, the, the consistency of what the, of what happens with the players after injury is, is poor. And I, and it continues to permeate itself through different areas of the world and different clubs. And I haven't seen it ever work consistently. I will, I will hand on heart, always say that an integrated department where there's true communication and a true understanding of of a basic philosophy and methodology uh, will always be better. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I'll just leave that there. Um, but one thing that I wanted to uh, touch on that we didn't really get a chance to in the, in the previous episode in part one was the nutrition side of things. And right. I think, I think it's really important because I've mentioned this a couple of times. This is, this is often, the nutrition side of things is often that f something that falls on the plate of the strength and conditioning coach, especially in, in smaller clubs that have got maybe a couple of staff or maybe one staff. Maybe it's a, a strength and conditioning coach that is also yeah. everything else. So I think it's really interesting to get um, people like yourself and, and your take on on the nutri nutrition side of things. I just think it's so, so helpful. I know that, like I said, we didn't get we didn't get chance to, but I'd love to get your um, thoughts and your experience and a couple of aspects that we've talked about privately. Uh, maybe you can share them, share them with us now. This, I think this is an area that's going to, we're going to see massive transition here, Rob. Um, you know, the sport in general, uh, especially team sport, we're a very carbohydrate driven um, industry at the moment. The, there's an over-reliance on it as a fuel source. I think there's a a lot of it has been heavily influenced by the food industry and, and um, what I think is, you know, borderline propaganda at times um, from a marketing perspective. And it influenced me definitely. Uh, you know, I, for the last, you know, I would say for there was a 10 year period where uh, it was, it was, um, it was gospel, you know, the, the carbohydrate um, theory of, of fueling was, uh, was you didn't argue it, you know, it was, it was the way it was done and there was really no other avenue to really, um, there was no reason to look any other place, you know, we're cramming 400 grams of carbs into our players daily and, um, you know, we're told that it's, you know, it's of paramount importance to make sure that we're the muscle glycogen is fully restored after every high intensity training session and games. And 
and that uh, to prepare for competition, there needs to be a loading period. And, um, you know, I just started to question it, Rob. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't understand why it was so dominant. And there was a, I spent as much time as I possibly could looking at, you know, the physiology of, of metabolism and, and trying to understand, um, what what fuels could give us the greatest benefit within our sport? You know, it is an acyclical sport. We all know that we need power. We all know that at moment, at the most critical moments in games usually come with high velocity movement, high velocity actions. But we know that our sport is underpinned by a massive need for aerobic capacity. And the as you evaluate, you know, fuel sources, it, it's difficult to understand why we don't why we don't place a greater priority on fat. And so that was the biggest question that, that I, that I, that faced me as I started to question the whole process was where has this over uh, emphasis on carbohydrates come from and where did the fat go? You know? And so that's what we, that's what I started to look at. And as the more and more I researched it and started to think about where we could go next, I just felt like nutrition was a stale area of the industry. And I, I came to the conclusion that we have to take advantage of fat metabolism, you know, and, and to do that is a, is a, is a tall order because, uh, you know, the body, the body will adapt, um, quite quickly to, to burning carbohydrates when we initiate exercise. Um, most athletes, most athletes in team sports are probably wired that way at the moment. Um, and, and, the effects it has on the body, in my opinion, go beyond just fuel. I think there's consequences to being over overly supplemented with carbohydrates. And so I, we we made it a, a priority when I was hired to, to, to really look into this in a way that was progressive and made a big impact on the team. Um, and so our, our question was, how much carbohydrates do you truly need? And can you produce power without carbohydrates? You know, we're we're a sport where the power the power we generate um, comes in spurts. You know, we're not talking about thirty seconds of continuous uh, anaerobic work that that gets done within games. You know, we're really talking about explosive movements that last in short duration and are filled with periods of walking, jogging, and recovery. You know, and so we're really I felt like creatine phosphate is a is a is a obvious is an obvious need within the sport. And I was searching for where the carbohydrate contribution comes from. And I do think there's periods where you need it, where there's multiple bursts taking place in a short duration. And I think that's where carbohydrate plays a major role in our sport. But I really felt like everything pointed towards, uh, you know, needing more of the benefit of fat adaptation and fat metabolism. And the, but the only way to get it is to train glycogen depleted, you know. So we, we went to we went to work at designing how we were going to accomplish that with the players, and we're three years into it now. Um, and our first year implementing it, uh, you know, everything from what we saw in the field to what the players reported back to us to our run all the way to the MLS Cup final, um, you know, told me that we were onto something. You know, I've got we had a we have a thirty at the time a thirty year old player who, on average. Uh, across the course of the year, on average, was was third on the list of of high intensity distance covered in games on average. And the guy's thirty years old. We had two in the top five. We had the number one position. We had the number three position in in, in 
high intensity distance covered on average per match. And one of the guys was a 30 year old, you know, so the improvements that we found were starting to show statistically as well. And we knew we were onto something. So uh, I don't think it's any big secret anymore. Um, lots of, lots of coaches across the league have, have called me and said, you know, what's, what's this thing that you guys are doing? Uh, it's going to, you know, I'm not going to unveil how we did it. I'm not going to, you know, release the process that we, that we go through to, to get the players fat adapted. But uh, I don't think it's any secret anymore that that's kind of a part of our strategy. So that was the big thing for me. And um, I've taken a lot of heat for it, Rob, to be fair. I'm not bothered. That, that it's, uh, uh, and, and I know that there's people that, uh, that don't necessarily agree with it. But the, uh, I mean, I've, I've got players that won't, won't go back to eating the other way ever. I mean, our whole group is collectively on board and doing a great job at, at um, you know, doing things a little bit different way. And it's important. You know, the, the, this particular area of nutrition needs to, needs to have its eyes opened a little bit. You know, there's this new idea of carbohydrate periodization, which is dipped into um, nutrition right now. And I really like that term. I like the term carbohydrate periodization. But the basic premise of carbohydrate periodization assumes that you're fat adapted. And, and what I mean by fat adapted is that when your players initiate exercise, they initiate exercise by burning fat. Your body has to be trained to do that. So although the idea of carbohydrate periodization is fantastic, it basically assumes that the player is already fat adapted. So that, that, has, to, that has to take place before you can uh, incorporate a carbohydrate periodization plan. But I think it's permeating its way into sport. Um, I know that the All Blacks won the World Cup fat adapted. There's many teams in Australian rules football that have now uh, have, have gone the, the route of being low carbohydrate, high fat. Uh, it, it's going to make its way through uh, sport quite quickly. I don't think it's going to take much time. But the 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 process of getting there, getting a whole team on board, um, is a part of culture, uh, and and that's been uh, I, I've been really really happy with the results, and I've got a great squad of players who uh, all credit to them just trusted us 100% and jumped in with both feet. So uh, I've got a head coach and sporting director who. When when he asked me, uh, you know, who else is doing this? I said, no one that I know of. He said, perfect. He didn't, you know, he didn't run scared where other managers asked me the same question. I said, no one. And they said, well, we're not doing it either. So uh, there, this is a collaborative effort across our entire performance platform and all of our coaches uh, and practitioners. And then the backroom staff is is on board 100 percent. So it's it's been a great process to see this transition and uh, I would I would say that if it doesn't happen soon across the league, across the sport, we're going to be missing something quite significant. I don't think we're fueling the players properly by 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 having a predominantly carbohydrate based diet. I don't think it's the proper diet for our sport. So I know you can't go into too much detail with with the kind of things that you do, but who who were your kind of go to resources when you were doing this research? Can you remember off the top of your head? Yeah, uh, there's some controversial and some not. Um, you know, Tim Noakes is a is a guy that's uh, uh, obviously quite well known for his belief in low carbohydrate, high fat, uh, and he he's he's under the gun right now in South Africa quite a bit um, legally for his position on things, and um, I, I wish him the best of that process because it's uh, he's been he's been earmarked as somebody that's uh, they're going after, and I don't think it's warranted. Um, outside of that, there's been some, you know, some 
great conversations with some people back in Liverpool. And we had Don McLaren, who was our nutritionist at the time when I was at Everton. And um, we dabbled back and forth with glycogen depleted training ideas while we were there. And that's really the start of where some of these things, some of these ideas came for me. Uh, and Don was a part of those conversations. And then James Morton at, at Liverpool, John Moores, um, you know, has done a lot of work in this area. But the most influential guy has been Jeff Folick. You know, we're, I'm lucky enough to have him right here at, at uh, Ohio State University. He's, he's right next door. Uh, and his research in this area, not only in not so much in sport, but more heavily into the medical world, has been really, really influential. Very, very helpful. Uh, and he's been a great consultant for me. Um, in this process. He's a very, very smart guy, much smarter than I am, thank God. And, uh, <laughs> and he, he's been he's been incredible. So those are a few people that are kind of uh, uh, more ingrained in the research behind a lot of it. And, and there's not a lot, to be honest. I mean, this was a big jump for us to, to make to make this move because, uh, you know, we were going off of anecdotal work. We were going off of research that's done in other areas and endurance sports, but not necessarily in in team sports, but we were, we were willing to take the risk. We saw it was there available to us and we knew it was going to be a benefit. What's, what's Jim's second name? Did you say? Say it again. I'm sorry. What's, what's his second name? Is it, is it Jim? The guy, the, um, Jeff. last guy you mentioned? Jeff. 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 Jeff was. Volick. V-O-L-E-K. Dr. Jeff Volick. Perfect. Right down, do a bit of digging. Yeah, no, he's a good guy. He's a good man. So I just want to kind of round up there. I think that's a nice place to, um, to to end. But just where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on, Steve? Obviously, they, you mentioned your Twitter last time. Yeah, yeah, it's still the same. Standard uh, question. Yeah, standard, no, st- 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 standard answer, Rob. Standard answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not too busy. But uh, if if I'm going to be busy, it's on Twitter usually. So you can find me at, at Steve Tashton on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, and I, you know, I really enjoy back and forth conversations in this, in any area of performance, really, you know, um, you know, it's important. We're trying to develop a much more robust culture. You know, this is, it's important to, to start to realize that, you know, performance isn't, isn't accidental, you know, it's, it's purposefully driven and you've got to create a culture to, to drive it. So I enjoy, I enjoy conversations with some really, really smart people. Uh, and Twitter's become a, a great way of doing that. So I, I appreciate anybody who has questions or, or you know, suggestions or anything like that. I, I like engaging with them. Mm. Get, in touch, get in touch with Steve and talk some shop. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for your time, mate. Um, part two, uh, really appreciate it. And um, and we'll keep in touch. And, and thanks again. No problem, Rob. Really appreciate it, buddy. Always a pleasure. No worries, mate. Speak soon. All right, bud. Thanks for tuning in to episode 119 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed part two with Steve Tastian, which followed part one from a couple of months ago. So just before I let you go, again, strengthofscience.com and a giveaway of a one-hour-long Dan Baker webinar. So just go to strengthofscience.com, enter your name and email address, and you will get immediate access to that one hour long Dan Baker webinar. So thanks for tuning in. Got some good guests again coming up over the next couple of weeks, and I will speak to you soon.